Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. South Africa, to me, makes some of the most exciting Syrah and Chenin Blanc out there. And those are two grapes that most sommeliers will tell you are some of the most underappreciated varieties. Chenin is actually the most widely planted grape in South Africa, and the number of high elevation, cool climate sites for these varieties can make for some really dynamic bottlings. Jurgen Close is one of those producers making really exciting wine in South Africa. He's actually in the region of Svortland. Again, kind of like Syrah and Chenin, an underappreciated region. Jurgen founded Intelego after spending time in southern France with Domaine Matassa and with Eben Sadi and Penedes. Uh, Jurgen and I spoke last week about making wine with minimal intervention and the importance of drinking wine from all parts of the world. But we started our talk by chatting about harvest, which had ended for him just days before. Here's Jurgen. We finished picking up last week on Friday. So you've just been parting your face off since then, right? That's... <laughs> we still have a lot of tanks to press. Yeah, yeah. So, but now, now it's a lot more chill because at least now all the grapes are in. Yeah. So it makes things a lot easier. You know, now, now we don't really care what's happening with the weather and the stuff because <laughs> we're happy. Yeah, <laughs> we no, don't care I, about I, the yeah. race. How far away are the vineyards that you're working with? Like, I know that you source fruit from a lot of different parts of Sportland. So like... In terms of like where they are, like how long is the drive to get the fruit from the vineyard to the winery? No, we basically all our vineyards are on a radius of I would say thirty kilometers. Okay, that's not that bad. No, 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 actually no. So uh, also yes, you know it's otherwise it becomes a bit too complicated. I've got a friend, uh, Ibn Sadi. I've heard of the guy. He he makes Still wine, right? On the side. <laughs> um, so basically, um, he's got a lot of vineyards on the west coast. So that's a long drive. So I think logistic-wise, it can be a nightmare if you're not well prepared, you know, or well organized. And Eben obviously is, you know, it's like perfectionist when it comes to those kind of things. So it works well for them. Um, but that's why, for me at the moment, that's my stage of my life. It's, you know, we're not uh, there yet. But uh, I'm happy with the stuff around here. I would obviously love to work with some stuff closer to the west coast because i've got a family farm there as well um, oh cool what do you guys grow there no nothing it's just like a, there's a house there and it's up you know it's opposite the beach and you know there's just a little bit of grazing and stuff you know for some goats and, and stuff and then at the back if you could drive up towards the back there are a lot of, a lot of potato fields it's um it's quite it's quite popular the west coast for the potatoes and stuff so it's good quality yeah um but no for, for the moment just all around here it works well not trying to complicate things too much. And I think also rather maybe concentrate on getting things done in the right way, you know, in the vineyards and in the winery before we maybe take the next step. That's more the focus at the moment. But no, we, it's been a very interesting harvest. Very, very. Yeah, I was going to say this harvest comes like right as we're all approaching the one year anniversary of lockdowns and stuff like that. I mean, a wild 12 months since last year's harvest, right? Yes. Did you get a chance to travel at all? Like- the last... So I've got a, my girlfriend, my fiance is European. Mm-hmm. She's from Andorra in the Pyrenees between Spain and France. So the last time I, I, I traveled was, I came back last year on the 3rd of January from Andorra. Yeah. And since then I haven't been able to travel. Mm. And I actually calculated, I think it's the first time since 2004, I haven't been able to travel for more than a year. You're getting itchy, you're getting, it's a little bit of cabin fever, right? Funny enough, in the beginning of uh, lockdown last year, I was like, fuck man, you know, how I'm going to handle this and stuff. Yeah. 
and it's fine. No, actually, honestly, <laughs> my fiance is just like, I need to get you out of South Africa. You need to get out. <laughs> you know, you need <laughs> you need yeah. to travel. I was like, well, is something wrong with me? <laughs> but no, it hasn't been a problem. And actually, it's 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 weird because normally. Um, I'll travel during May and June because then there's a lot of like fairs overseas. Maybe this this time around, it gave me time to actually, put, uh, you know, spend a bit more time in the vineyards and stuff, and which is a good thing, you know. And I can't see, I can't see how I'll be able to travel before December, if yeah. if this year. Uh, I would love to travel, <laughs> and I was looking forward. I mean, just before COVID, uh, I spoke to um, Mika, and we set up this nice thing for coming to the US last year. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I was supposed to go to Nebraska. I've never been to Nebraska. Me <laughs> neither, man. Like. I've never been either. But. <laughs> yeah, and we had a nice thing set up for Texas again, you know, and it's just, just yeah. like, you know, I was very excited. And then, and oh yeah, California. And I've never been to California. And Really? California for, California for me is this one place in the world where I, I, I really want to go and just see it because everybody, you know, everybody's always been talking about it, the surf and the, the vibe and everything. And I was actually super excited just to see California for the first time in my life. And then COVID struck and I was like, okay, fuck. No US trip. So it's funny enough, I was thinking the other day, um, I actually have all the trips. I probably missed the US one the most. I would have really loved to have done the US one. Europe, I go I go quite often to Europe. Europe is Europe, you know, it's cool. Yeah. You know, the history and everything. But US would have been, that's always fun. But listen, um, tell me about, um, fuck man, I read up about the winter and stuff and about the bad conditions you guys yeah. had recently and I, I saw the snow. Uh, <laughs> what's going on? Yeah, so it was crazy. We got the coldest weather we had ever gotten in 35 years. And the problem is that the infrastructure here just doesn't support it. Uh, houses are built in Texas to keep heat out, not keep heat in. All the pipes also for houses are on the exterior and they're not very well insulated. So... Homes just, you had people who had burst pipes. Um, The power grid was super fucked. And because Texas is on its own kind of independent grid separate from the rest of North America, there was no way for us to get power from another source. So we were just like totally screwed. You had people that were dying of hypothermia. You had people who, you know, were dying of carbon monoxide because they were trying to use like their fireplace or they were using little propane heaters. Like it it was a wild situation. It was not ideal. Yeah. And it was across the whole state, right? It was Austin, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio. It was everywhere. Um, I've talked to a couple people in the wine side of things, people that have vineyards planted out uh, in West Texas, and like they were just totally fucked by this too. Oh, shit. Yeah, not not an ideal scenario for sure. How bad does the winter get where you are? Because it's really a Mediterranean climate. It's pretty pretty mellow most of the year, right? We we, we never get below zero at night. Hmm. Yeah, the coldest will be, okay, degrees-wise, maybe three degrees, two degrees. Hmm. But then during during the day, no, it's, it's winter average, I would say, is about 12, 12 degrees. I don't know how many. That is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so no, 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 South Africa, we've got a few spots that, spots that gets below zero, uh, you know, but um, not a lot of residential areas. Yeah. Um, so the, the climate is very good in this country, you know. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. so we're not used to extreme colds um yeah so that's a good thing um but no so i guess it's, i was thinking now you know it's probably the same for us all of a sudden we just get a a week-long storm of we're not prepared for any of that as yeah. well um, you know it's yeah um snow 
if you see snow in this country, you need to go up into the mountains, you know? It's, yeah, no, I feel it, you. I guess um, what you have the most to deal with is like droughts, right? That's the big issue, right? You guys had a really bad drought. What was it like in 20, like 16? Yeah. yeah, 2016 and then running into 17. And then we had, uh, it was like, uh, we had this, this water issue in Cape Town in the Western Cape, this province. And it was actually quite amazing to see how the people work together and how we started to live with that and what the people did to actually kind of like save water, uh, which is which was very cool to see, you know. Um, Just like no showering allowed, right? No bathing. That's that's the best way to see. Yeah, or you were not allowed to wash your car. And then obviously when you shower, you know, you catch it up in a, in a, in a container and you use that to f fill the toilet. And, you know, when you flush the toilet, you know, you just don't yeah. flush the toilet, you know. Some people actually took bricks and they put it into the toilet bowl so that it doesn't use that much water to fill before you flush it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Or even, you know, outside uh, or you know, like almost like sewage water they would use for the toilets and stuff. So it was it was it was very cool to see how people actually how well we worked. And then uh, I think it was at the end of 17 or beginning of 2018, they were like, it's going to take a few years. And then in the winter that that next year, six months later, we had a shitload of rain. And then all of a sudden it was like everything is fine. So it was really cool and how quickly things changed around again. But yeah, it started in 2016. 2016, 17 was really bad. Uh, and then in 18, it started getting better. The last year has been, we've, we've had average rainfall, which is really cool. So like this past year was like perfect conditions or what was the vibe for, for this past harvest? It was very good conditions. The start of growing season was good. You know, spring, the last few years in South Africa, it's almost like spring is a little bit later, which is not a problem. And then the rest of the growing season was fine. We had a bit of, I would say challenging conditions when it came to um, um, spraying and stuff, especially um, I think we had a bit of more humid conditions in November, a bit of the odd rain. So there's a few people out there that had a bit of disease. There was a bit of disease pressure. Um, but I think if you farmed it properly, you know, it wouldn't have been an issue. And then also um, December as well, the nights were really cool. Even January, even now in February, we've got cooler nights. So it's probably been the coolest vintage I've been part in the last 11 years. That's um, awesome, right? I mean, it's great. Uh, but there's also like in this area, a lot of guys now, they, they're actually almost like waiting for the sugar levels to rise. Mm. But then also at the same time, now it's a stage where the acidity starts to drop. So it's, 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 it's good to have cool conditions, but then also acidity slowly starts to drop out, which you don't want in this warm climate region because yeah. acidity is the one thing, you know, that I think drives these wines, especially when you make these fresher style wines. So I think it's, it's not like 2017 where we had cool nights in 2017, but we had warm days. So you had, you had like um, a lot of ripe fruit, but you had good acidity. Now we've got cool nights and maybe not that, not that warmer days. So it's still early days, uh, 2021 might be a year where we've got good acidity, but maybe not all that plush fruit that we had in 2017. Time will only tell. I, you know, it's, it's difficult yeah. to say now. Um, you kind of got to let yes. the wines figure out what they're going to be, like once they go through fermentation, elevage, all that stuff, right? Yeah, we, we and we also, it's been the latest harvest in a long time. We started, it's been between 10 and 14 days later than normal. So it's been... It's been late, uh, and normally I finish around middle of Feb, and we only finished last Friday. So, so, so we'll have to see, uh, and also interesting to see with the wines and stuff. And um, some of the wines, some of the reds, has got not such intense tannin structure. 
uh, but they've got good fruit. But I mean, every that's a nice thing. Everyone's just different. For me, in a way, every year is a good year. Uh, and that's what's, what we're also lucky. We're very lucky in this country that I think we're not as um, in Europe, you know, you have problems with frost, you know, and you have got yeah. like a lot of rain problems and stuff. Over here in South Africa, it's, it's we don't have those problems. So it's more like wind and heat, those those conditions. And we haven't had um, a lot of heat this year. So it's it's always like you will always find something good out of every vintage in this country, which is a nice thing, which which makes things a bit easier. And I think maybe that way also, if you compare South African wines to Northern Hemisphere wines or European wines, it's it's not as extreme. Every vintage, you'll find something good. Um, whereas for me, just for me personally, I love the 2014s from Europe and I didn't like the 2015. So it's, it's been like the one that's been here and the other one's been there. It's such a big year. Yes, it's such a big difference. We're in this. Usually clocking in at like 15% alcohol, just like super big, high octane. Yeah, no, no, exactly. So, um, But on the flip side, though, sometimes in those like really shitty years where a producer might lose like a lot of their fruit to frost or something like that, then all of a sudden they're making new cuvées. Like I know you like drinking Domaine Moss, right? Those two brothers like make such delicious wine, but I know that in the past when they've been fucked over by, you know, frosts or bad weather conditions, they've bought fruit from other parts of France and made interesting new wines just as a result of like needing fruit. Yeah, or even the guys, I mean, and I think it is this guy, but even in Burgundy as well, um, you know, those people, you know, those guys struggles with the frost and stuff and then they just buy buy fruit from the friends more down south. Yeah. Um, which, which turns out to be interesting and good. And I think 2016 was also a problem over there. I can't just remember the guy now. Um, Thomas, Thomas Pico. I really like his wines from Burgundy. So, yeah. And I remember he had a wine in 2016 or 17. We also just bought grapes from the south, from France, because he basically lost his whole vintage due to bad conditions. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. Well, the same but, with, like, yeah, Ganova, yeah. right? Like, it's that you make some wines from your own region and then you source fruit from other areas and do, like, cool shit there. So, it's cool to think about for sure. I think it's also, yeah, make you think about more out of the box. And um, it's also interesting to see those producers, how they... You know how they the, the reaction during those difficult times and stuff. Luckily, no, no, we're very lucky in like a situation where we don't really have those problems um, or touch wood, not yet. So yeah. Yeah. So you you've been making your wines under the Intelego label for almost ten years now, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and you started it when you were still working at another winery. Was it always the goal to like have your own label that you were working on? Like, when did you come to the decision that you wanted to like do your own stuff? You know, it's funny. Uh, when I started, I started at the place just outside, just outside Stellenbosch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we all, it was, basically, if you were studying wine in this country, you basically study around Stellenbosch. Mm-hmm. And Stellenbosch is like, you know, there's a lot of wineries around there. And that's where, except for Cape Town, that's where, where a lot of stuff started back in the day. I think so as a student, you know, we all were like, mm, you know, I would love to get a job at a domain in Stellenbosch. You know, you, you get a nice job, you know, you can you can start a life, um, you know, work at a small wine estate, maybe something that's like 50, 40 hectares big. So you can be in control or you can run the vineyards as well and make the wine. I think that was the, that was the whole thing. It's team. a very I clear path, right? Exactly, yeah. So for me in the beginning, that was the thing. And then I, I started working at a few wineries and... I enjoy it. But then I met, actually, I worked at the winery where Ibn Saadi used to actually make a bit of his wines as well. He made a wine called um, Sekiu. Okay. Um, so that was, off, that was off the spice route. 
and it was very and i think what what fascinated me was his passion for the wine and the way they did it and i saw how they were making the wines and i just thought to myself gee you know but this looks really great it's just a nice ambiance and in which way they make the wines and how hands-on and decent stuff and i think that kind of like triggered something in me that hey you know maybe you do want to make your own wine one day so i think that's where it slowly started and then i started traveling abroad and i think also when i traveled abroad and i worked abroad you started getting this building up your palate you know you get a lot of references you drink the wines you you're starting to get this perfect wine in your in your mind this idle wine yeah uh, and then i think i got to a stage where i just realized listen but this is what I think. This is what I would love to do. And the only way for me out there is just going to be to do my own thing. Even though maybe three years before that, I never thought it would be possible because where would I get the financial gains and all that stuff? You know, it's a totally different story. My family's never been in wine. You know, I don't have a father that's got a winery that I can just um, continue and take over. So I think that's where the whole thing started. And then um, I started working abroad, you know, just out of uh, for experience, but then also for me, the big thing was to work in France and in Europe to to taste as many possible good wines as I can. Because, um, like I've said to people many times before, you know, equipment is equipment. Whether it's in South Africa, whether it's Europe, whether it's the USA, you know, it's it's everywhere. It's the same. It operates the same. Everybody uses either French or Italian or Slovenian press. So I'm not going to go to France and all of a sudden somebody's going to teach me this is how you operate the press. So for me, the thing was taste the wines, drink the wines, see what wines are out there. Because in South Africa, it's quite difficult um, to have access to all these amazing wines. You know, it's, it's very limited. And that's a great thing for me also about traveling. So Yeah, so like in France, like what were some of those producers that either you visited or you got a chance to drink their wines? Like which ones left the biggest impressions on you? Well, I worked for a guy in Cotroti, Stéphane Augier. So I worked for him for seven months in the vineyards and in the winery. And through him, I drank a lot of great wines. After that, I worked with uh, Tom Luber from Matassa in the Roussillon. Yeah, uh, who's originally worked, from worked... South Africa, right? Exactly, yeah. He, like, I think he grew up in South Africa and was born in South Africa. And then he went to New Zealand in school. And then he came back to South Africa to work at Spice Root. And then eventually went to uh, Gobi. And that's where yeah. he, how he started. So also drinking his wines. And then there's a guy called uh, Remy Pedreno from Rock Dangla in the Langadoc. Uh, I worked with him. And then also I worked with Eben in Priorat in 2007. So yes, so I did, and I also visited um, Burgundy in 2009 and 20, 2009, 2010, which was like an eye opener. It was, it was absolutely, I was dumbstruck when I got to, to Burgundy just to see the vibe and taste the wines and the knowledge of the sommeliers, you know, about the wines in that region. It was insane. So I think that all was just like so overwhelming. And I was, I just realized, fuck man, you know, I want to, this mm -hmm. is what I want to do. I want to make wines myself. Uh, I want to work myself, but it took a bit of time. And then in 2011, um, I came back to South Africa and I started working with Craig Hawkins from Testa Longa. And the, he told me I could make a bit of wine on the side there while I worked for them. So that's how the whole Interlego thing actually started. Um, so thanks mm. to them, I was—I didn't have the financial gains once again, but I knew that if I if I would get a salary, you know, I can at least slowly start on the side. And that's that's actually how a lot of people have done it in the Swartland, um, especially a lot of the younger winemakers, um, which is also quite a big thing in this region. You know, there's a lot of like. I would say a lot of young winemakers between the age of 30 and 40 at the moment, and they've all started like that and slowly building up their own thing. Yes. So when I think about it, there's kind of like that first generation of Sportland producers, you know, like Evan Sadi, and then there's this younger generation of producers like you. And it's cool that it's still relatively speaking, 
you know, a smaller region, but small in the sense of like the number of producers, right? I mean, it's one of the largest geographically speaking, but it's super cool to see this kind of like new generation of people coming through and making really exciting wines. Yeah. And I think it's also been good because we actually, we all, most of us are friends and stuff. And yeah. there's been our age group friends. It's actually been quite a lot of us starting something here. And I just hope that the next generation will come through and, you know, will also be as strong and take over and continue this whole thing, which they will. There's a few guys helping me now for Harvest and they're the next generation, which is quite cool. And you can see already that they're pretty much on it and it will continue as that. And the nice thing with Eben and Artie Bardenhorst and, you know, the Malinews and Porsche Lehmberg is that they also, you know, they, they're trying to help us, you know. So it's it's, mm-hmm. it's been a... It's like a nice camaraderie in the Swartland, you know. It's like a, this little community uh, where everybody just, you know, just stand together and uh, trying to make the best and also be supportive of each other. So that's a very cool thing in the Swartland. And I've met a lot of people outside of the wine industry and also outside of this country. And they're quite amazed at how well it operates in this region. You know, they, they like it's so unique. And it's funny because for us, it's like normal, you know. We think it's like, yeah, you mm-hmm. know. There's nothing funny or weird or whatever about it, uh, but it is actually kind of like very, very special. So, do you think that's in part because it's such a young region, relatively speaking? Do you think it's just like the fact that you guys have the Svartland independent producers kind of like within everything? There's already an infrastructure. Like, what's kind of helping create that collaborative spirit? I think uh, we've been very lucky in the sense that with Adi Bardnos, with Ibn Saadi, uh, with those people, they their vision. And I think they think a lot, they think very much out of the box. And um, I think that that brought a lot to the party. And they saw that back in the day when they started the whole Swartland Independent and those kind of stuff. So I think that was very important. But then I think the nice thing is, it's almost like a region where there's no pressure on us because basically everybody in the Swartland, nobody of us, everybody's from outside of this region, number one. Number two, everybody are first generation. So there's, you've got no pressure on you. So you, everybody can travel. They can come with their own knowledge, with their own ideas, you know, and then they implement that. And from that, we can kind of like build a region from scratch. And I think that's, mm. that's been a very key success in why the Swatland works so well. From day one, it's just been like, you know, we just, we were free, you know. Because, uh, I mean, a lot of time I know there's a lot of wine regions where, you know, you, you might be the third or the fourth generation. And they, they are that added pressure of, you know, what style can you change the style you know what will your dad say about that that's it's it's something that becomes very complicated and i think we were just like listen we would travel we would drink wines and then at the end of the day we like i love this i want to try it and you try it and if it works it works if not so what and i think there's there's a lot of freedom there's a lot of freedom Uh, and then it's also the people um you know the region can be as good as it wants to be the terroir can be great but I think it's also 50% of people. Uh, and there's just a lot of great characters in this region. Um, people that's, that they're not hung up. They're not fussy people. They just enjoy life. Uh, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's no thrills or fusses or, you know, it's, there's no issues. Uh, and I think we were lucky in a sense that the base were built around a lot of those people that were just here for, for, for the good of it and trying to, to create or to get a region to get to the stage where, you know, it's, internationally renowned by that i say that we realized we had to help each other to actually get the swatland somewhere on the map because if it was a A rising tide raises all ships exactly you were talking a little bit about like experimenting and doing different styles it's cool because at intelego right you make you know 
dry Shenan, but then you also have skin contact Shenan. You know, you've got just the Intelego Syrah, and then you've got some stuff that's like whole cluster. You've got the really drinkable Vindiswaf, pink mustache. Like there's a whole range of different things. Was that kind of just like a gradual thing as you were going, like this gradual experimentation or like what were the first couple of bottlings back in 2011 like? Well, I remember I, when I worked for Remy Pedrena in Languedoc, uh, Remy, he, he worked with about 50 tons uh, and he made a rosé, red and a white. But the red, the red was a blend, the white, you know, the white was a Chenin Chardonnay blend, and then the rosé was a blend as well. And I was like, this is a good concept. And I thought to myself, I'm going to start making, you know, when, I, when my th- stuff takes off, I'm going to do a white rosé and a red. And then eventually it started with the white, the Chenin, and then we went to the Syrah. Uh, and we got to the stage where I did the rosé in 2015. Um, but it's just, I think it's just something that happened. It's, it's, it's almost like once it catches on, it's, it's, it's impossible to stop because you, you start making something and then you drink something else and you're like, what about that? You know, you want to explore a bit and then you try something new and it works really well. So then you continue with that. So it's, it's, it's almost like, it's like an addiction. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to control yourself. Uh, and I always said in the beginning, three wines. And now I think I'm at eight, nine wines. And, and sometimes, you know, back then I would look back and I would see these producers doing 15 wines. And I'm like, are they nuts? Are they crazy? You know, it's just, it's just too many. But I mean, if you've got so many different partials that's so individual and it's got their own characters, then I also think it's not fair just to blend it for the sake of not making too many wines. So with a pink moustache, um, I think it was in 2014 when I really started traveling to the UK. And I, I went to this one one wine fair that's called the Real Wine Fair. There was a lot of these Manasuaf lighter red salt wines. And I loved it. I loved drinking these wines. And that's where the Pink Moustache started. You know, I drank these wines in the UK. I drank them in Europe. And it was they were one of my favorite wines. Uh, I drank the Prusach from the Jura. And it was just like, I just really, really loved these vibrant wines. And I think that kind of triggered something in me. And, you know, I was like, okay, cool. Let's see what we can do, you know. It's like you also mm-hmm. want to challenge yourself, you know. Because otherwise, you know, if year in and year out, I just kept on making the Shen and the Syrah somewhere along the line you know i would lose a little bit of interest uh so mm-hmm. i think as i think as a winemaker it's also like that that challenge and also you know to 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 always see how far you can move the boundaries uh but also to keep it interesting to yourself because you don't want to get to that stage where you know it's just like okay i'm making these two wines you know next year we're just going to continue making these two wines but then also i re- i realize and i imagine that if you own your own, own vineyards, unlike what I do, um, then I think maybe all that energy can make, maybe go into the farming. So I'm at that stage where I don't own any vineyards. So for me, all that energy has to go into the wine, uh, even though I actually rent and farm some vineyards, but it's not my own. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of energy and that energy I need to channel somewhere. And I think that's where it comes to you know, with new ideas, with different ideas, trying to see how we can revive some grape varietals or, you know, some wines that back in the day or recently um, hasn't been a knowledge or um, that people find not interesting anymore. You know, that's, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's like a challenge. And I mean, for me, I think that's my personality as well as like, I like a challenge, you know, it's, it's nice. It's, so what's the big challenge right now for you? What's, what, what's well, the current project? 
Oh, we this year now this current forage in this harvest is we started we made a pet net. Oh, rad. Yeah, yeah. Up until up until last year, I said I will never make wine because I like drinking it, but it's just mm -hmm. the bottling during harvest is something that I don't want to do, and you know there was just too many things involved. And then for some reason this year, um, this one block we had a, a shitload of grapes, and I just it's Mouvedre. And I just decided mm. I've al I've always said if I make a pet net I will make it from red. Uh, I love the white pet nets, but I prefer making one from red. So I was like, oh, here's an opportunity. The juice is good. Uh, let's try it and let's see. So you know we haven't bottled it yet, and <laughs> hopefully it turns out to be nice, drinkable. Uh, I drank a wine in 20 I think it was 20 2011 in France called La Bulle. Uh, it, it, mm -hmm. it was made somewhere in the Loire and it was also a red mm -hmm. and I remember that wine I still have the bottle and that was so nice the fine bubbles uh, it was so mm -hmm. fresh and that's stuck in my mind ever since and I've, I've always thought if I want to make a pet nut I definitely want to make a red and if that thing can, can any be close to that wine that I drank back then you know I'll be super, <laughs> super happy so you know it's, it's like you, you always have a reference of something you know, whether you yeah. make your skin contact, when you make the pet net or whatever. Uh, but I think also another challenge for me at the moment is uh, penetrage. And also, I think maybe in the style that we make the penetrage. And I think um, there's a massive market for that out there. And for reference real quick, because I don't know if your pinotage makes it to the United States. I don't know if Vine Street brings it in, do they? they yes, they do. It's, it's called the Halagasha. Uh, but we, it's, it's, it's only, we actually, yeah, we actually sent a few bottles last year. So it's probably only okay, word. arrived like two months ago. So, but yes. Uh, and funny enough, in the early 2000s, when I finished studying and stuff, I was very anti-penetage. I thought it was horrible, but I mean, also. Well, I, I think everyone was anti-penetage back then, you know, yes, because at least a lot of people were. Yes. And I think also because back then they were only basically the one style, the more mm -hmm. over-extracted concentrated style, you know, which, yeah, I, I hate Whereas now, you know, people have started trying out a lot more different styles. And I think we try, we're still trying to find our feet with the penetrage. You know, with the Senso in this country, it was a lot easier because in the 70s, we used to blend Senso with CAD. And then for some reason, um, that stopped. And then 2008, 9, 10, then all of a sudden, Senso came back to, you know, in South Africa. It became very popular. It's an amazing grape. And it, only, it was only like, I don't know, seven, eight years. And then all of a sudden, you know, it... it went up by like i mean five thousand percent whereas with pinotage i think it's going to take a bit more time it's maybe something a bit more complex where we need to really tweak it and find the really that specific style if we can in such a way but i also think it's about the farming as well and it's amazing because i work with pinotage on three different partials in the part of this region and it's amazing mm -hmm. how they all differ i really do think there's, there's a place for pinotage whether you make a rosé where you make a light style red even with the pet net, uh, my friend Johan Mayer um, from Mother Rock, mm -hmm. he makes a really good pet net from the from Pinotage. Uh, so I also think it's a very it's a very versatile grape. So I guess the key is that you just give it a shorter hang time, not letting the grape get as physiologically ripe. Shorter maceration, whole cluster, like are those the sorts of things that you're doing both in the vineyard and in the cellar to kind of like get the most out of it. And, I, and I, yes, and I do find them very ex but more exciting once they're from a southwest or a west facing slope. It's when once mm. you get a little bit of a warmer slope, I think it just gives you a bit more flavors and, and a bigger flavor profile to play around with. But then when you work with the stuff on the more east facing slopes, uh, that's where I'll maybe go more the rose style, the more lighter style. 
but yeah, so, and it's also, it is prone to disease and stuff. So I think the farming is very important. And yeah, I think we need to put maybe a bit more emphasis on that. But then also, I think the winemaking is a very big thing. And that's where I think something like bougie lifestyle, carbonic macerations, that works really, really well, the panatage. Um, you know, because if you wait for, if you give it long hang time, you know, you're going to end up with, they call it a four by four in this country where your pH is four, your acidity is four. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just too ripe. So we definitely, I definitely think that's the way. So I think with panatage, um, maybe more so than with any other grape in this country at the moment, the wine making place may be a little bit bigger part. You know, if you end up with a, not a perfect result, but the result that you want. So it's definitely a challenge. Uh, and I think it's, it will be interesting to see how this all pans out. But I've, I've, got, I've got a lot of hope for it. And we even, I think it was two years ago, we had a mini festival where we just, uh, Pinatos was basically like, that was the, um, everything, you know, it was, that was a theme. Is that know. separate from the rendezvous Rebeek that you, that you go to? No, that was, that was the Rebeek rendezvous actually. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we can tell listeners about that. Cause it looks like a fucking party. It looks amazing. It looks super cool. Yeah. So it looks, uh, Rebeek rendezvous is just, it's just a nice way of ending the year. It's always, we always have it the first Saturday in December and, uh, it's just a nice way of, you know, um, letting your hair back, just chill, just chat about the, uh, just, we, we get a live little band there and you can taste the wines and it's very, it's, it's not expensive. So we, we just want, you know, the average show walking past and who's interested in it can come and, you know, come buy a ticket and then just come and enjoy the day with us. So it's, it's nothing complicated. It's, it's just something very <laughs> chilled. It's the end of the year. You know, it's normally, normally, I guess it's everywhere in the world, but also by December, everybody is, in Afrikaans is a word called hutful, which is like you're fed up. So by yeah. that time of the year, I think everybody's just like, we just want the year to end and we just want to chill for two, three weeks. Uh, yeah. And I think the rendezvous is just the perfect thing to just come and chat to the producers, taste the wines and just chill and have a, like a, you know, like a, like a chill day. So from the beginning, that's with the idea. And it was also not a money-making thing. You know, we, we don't make profit. We just break even. But at the end of the day, we can showcase our wines to the people. And every year we choose a different theme. The last year, you know, we just opened up. We just basically just all the wines because also of COVID and anything. We just decided bring out the producers and let them just show whatever they can because they haven't been able to yeah. do that for the last or back then for the the, the last nine months. Uh, but normally we kind of like choose a, um, a theme, uh, like the Pinatas, the one year or the other year was since so just to sh- show it to the people. And I think the important mm-hmm. another important thing is we always trying to get one or two producers from outside the Swartland. So that the people in the Swatland can also see and taste the wines from outside, you know, because that's also very important in this country, you know. It's not only about one region. Uh, and maybe yeah. maybe a lot of locals never really get the chance to travel out of the Swatland and go and taste wines from Stellenbosch or Paul or Constantia. But I think that's also very important just to make them also be, be part of it. And for, I think also when we can find producers that's pretty young, that's pretty new, smaller producers that never really get the opportunity to to be on the big stage or actually sell their wines. Uh, I think that's also a good way of introducing them into the industry. So we're kind of looking for that to to, to introduce them and then also to show their wines. And there's there's a lot of interesting stuff out there and there's a lot of great young winemakers out there, um, you know, outside of the SWAT that makes amazing stuff. And I think also maybe a bit more um, like-minded like us when it comes to 
the farming, the winemaking, uh, and uh, yeah, also the start of the wine. Yeah, it's just it's just a really cool party. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it sounds rad. I know we talked a little bit about Pinotage. We talked a little bit about Senso. Maybe we can talk just a touch about Shannon because you do make such really interesting and such a varied array of wines. You have the Intelego Shannon, you have the story of Harry Shannon, and then you have uh, this guy over here. Um, yes. Yeah, we got some Elementus. <laughs> um, and totally different styles. Each one of them tastes totally different. But kind of like dealing with Bushvine Shannon, which, which for me at least, that's some of the most exciting wine coming out of the entire country is this old vine Shannon Blanc. Like, what's kind of your approach? How do you think about which vineyards would be best suited to skin contact? How do you approach skin contact with Shannon? What's kind of the vibe there? Um, yeah, so it's interesting. So basically that, so all the Shannon Blanc vineyards that I work with at the moment, they all are bushfire. So they're all dry and farm, no irrigation, um, which, I mean, which... Was that super tough during the drought, like in 2016 and 17? It's very tough. It's very tough if you've got um, all established markets and then all of a sudden the next year, you know, volumes are so low that you kind of like, you know, you can't, um, yeah, it's just a, then it's just like you can't live up to the demand, which is quite a, quite a struggle. And it's also tough trying to explain to those markets, you know, what's going on. Um, so that's the thing, one thing with the bush vines. But I mean, with that, that comes that, great intensity of the fruit, especially on these dryland vineyards. And a lot of them are actually um, established on more sandier soils. So where there's more gravel, where there's more granite on the top level, top layer of the soils. Um, and I think that also brings a lot of freshness and minerality to, the, to those wines, which I really like. Because um, I always try to pick it early uh, so that we retain good natural grape acidity so that... Um, that freshness will just carry the wines that much that much longer. But then again, um, like for instance, if we take the Elementis, this is one vineyard. It's more on the west side of the Swatland. This is situated on the on 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 the soil that's a bit more kind of like gravel, and then becomes a bit more um, clay to the at the bottom. So the clay clay content is a bit higher there. So that's always really worked really well. And you know, it's almost like the Elementis. Is, it's got that profile of like bruised fruit, and there's a bit of ginger involved in it um you know a bit of citrus as well so it's not a lot of sweet fruit and then i've got a vineyard that's more on granite that's about 30 kilometers from there more towards the east side and in 2017 we just we just tried doing that also skin contact wine of that and we did it and it was amazing how different the two were because uh, at a stage i was like you know maybe they're kind of similar maybe i can blend it into that and we can just you know do more elementis but it was just mm -hmm. amazing how site specific the Elementis is. And I'm starting to feel it more and more when it comes to skin contact whites. Um, skin contact whites for me are very, very site specific wines. Uh, and it's amazing to see how it, it all differs on different sites. Um, so, you know, that's a nice thing as it's all a learning process for me as well. I went through all of this, you know, I tried a lot of different things and I never knew this. But so, one big thing I learned about orange wines is it's site specific. It's so site specific. Because you also do the skin contact Viognier, the sleeping co pilot, right? Exactly. And that we did the yeah. same. That we also, we actually do one from, so the, so the sleeping co pilot's from a block. That's a lot of uh, red soil. So the clay content is pretty high there. And then there's another block on granite that we also get a bit of Viognier from, but that goes into another blend. And we also do skin contact there. And it's absolutely amazing to see how the two of them differ as well, even the color, everything. So it's like two total opposites. <laughs> Whereas if we, for instance, had just made a normal Viennier, 
I reckon they would have been very different, but not as different. And eventually we actually could have blended it. So once again, it brings me back to that specific thing yeah. about, about the skin contact wines. And then to come back to the Shannons, uh, I think the Interlagos Shannon, it's maybe a bit more of an intellectual wine. Um, it's a very interesting site on the granite soils. It's very fresh. It's very steely. It's very minerally. Um, I still think it's a wine that will do very well if we ferment that in concrete, whether it's concrete tanks or whatever. And we'll probably move in that direction in the next few years. But that's also a vineyard that ripens very early. It's the first vineyard we pick. It's, first, it's situated on a um, southeast facing slope, so it gets a lot of morning sun. So that's a super, super early vineyard, super early block. But it's just got such great acidity and such low pH. So it's, it's, it's a very nice wine to work with. But like I said, it's, it's a very more intellectual wine. And then when it comes to the story of Harry, um, that block is also on granite, but that's a little bit more towards the south. Um, maybe not as intellectual as the Interlego Chenin Blanc. But then also we work with a little bit of Chardonnay with the story of Harry. Um, the, mm. the Chardonnay is also on the granite side. And funny enough, you would not... Um, mentioned Chardonnay and Swartland in the same sentence. You know? yeah. It's just, it's just it's got the right conditions for that. But it's a really great blending component. And um, I've been actually quite surprised over the last few years with the Chardonnay and the Swartland or from that specific block. But once again, you know, it's been well farmed. It's been farmed organically since the early 2000s. It's situated just on a nice kind of like south facing slope. So it works really well. But it just brings something extra to the wine, even though it sometimes might only be between 10 and 25% of the blend. But it just shows you, and I think it takes me back to when I worked in Langedorp back in the day. And uh, we also had a white wine that was about 30% um, Chardonnay and 70% Chenin. And that Chardonnay just, you know, that added, just added a bit more grip and that also the acidity and the freshness to the wine, to the final blend, which worked really well. Um, so I think one should also be very cautious, you know, to, 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 to label certain varietals just to, you know, as something that's only made for certain regions and um, areas. But I think also mm -hmm. just, that brings us back to the Swartland where I think blending is quite a, quite a cool thing. And then, you know, I think this region, the climate lends itself to, towards blending and uh, working a bit more with, with blending components. Hell yeah. You know, it's funny. I was, I was on your Instagram earlier looking through some photos and I feel like you post more photos of other people's wines than you do your own wines. <laughs> I'm like scrolling through there and I'm like, this motherfucker doesn't post any photos of his own wines. It's all like some really badass stuff from Jura, a bunch of cider from Normandy. You love Eric Bordelais. Oh yeah. Like, love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> Can you get a lot of cider down in South Africa? Is that a thing that you can get much of? No, no. The problem in this country is the fruit, the acidity is way too low. We don't have those varietals, mm. those small little apples, you know, with the high acidity. So yeah. it's, it's your acidity levels are so low. And we tried it one year with pear, with a pear cider at, I think it was 2015. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was nice. It, it worked. But then also... You know, um, I don't think, uh, you know, in South Africa, the consumers, they're not so much into ciders. They're not so much into a 750 ml bottle cider. Hmm. People want a cider in this country. They'll go and drink a cider at a bar somewhere where it's in a 330 ml. Or maybe it's like a sweeter style of cider, more driven by fruit and not like that more savory character. Yes. So so, so it's, it's already a challenge in this country to sell a, a you know, a 750 ml bottle of cider. Um, so that's what mm. I also realized back then when we made it, because it was a very nice cider and I really enjoyed it. But for some reason, it we, eventually we sold out, but it wasn't a lot of bottles and it, it, it took quite a while. Yeah. So yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely a big fan. And I think if I had another chance to 
if I had the time and a chance to go and harvest in Europe again, I probably would have approached Eric Wardley and asked him, "Hey man, can I just come? really? Yeah, I would have. I would have loved. Oh yeah, just to just to experience that. Um, but yeah, so no, I find a lot of enjoyment drinking other people's wines. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's funny for me. It's always it's always about I think the other person out there drinking their wines, finding you know a lot of fun and enjoying that. I love my own wines. I like the wines I make. I love the style that I do and stuff. But it's it's nice for me to share with the people out there, you know, what other stuff I'm drinking. No, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's, it's so it's, any new discoveries? Anything that you've really been vibing on lately? I think I'm I'm trying to get it more into maybe some of the pinots from Oregon and from the Washington State mm. in the US. Trying to drink more of those wines. Um, so yeah, um, we got to get you on the West Coast. We got to fly you out, spend a little time. That's why I want. That's why I want to get out there. You know, want to go out there, go and visit. And then also, I've started actually reading a book. Um, it's almost like the revolution of the Napa, of the of California of the Napa Valley. It's a very interesting mm-hmm. book. Um, you know, we also it was basically about all these heavy um, over extracted wines, and now all of a sudden people want to start making fresh wines, fresh style wines. So that's very interesting, and that that kind of like wants me to go back there or to go there actually and go taste the wines and 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 see what it's it's all about. Obviously, out there, you know, this this is picture of california that's just massive alcoholic wines but you know it's like with any other region you know there's there's a lot of hidden gems and stuff no there's some amazing people doing really cool stuff out in cali uh it's definitely not a monolith um there's some cool stuff going on for sure you know one other thing that i wanted to talk to you about like i had a chance to listen to your conversation for the ex animo podcast and then i also listened to you talking to jim clark for the WOSA podcast. Okay. And in both of them, you kept referring back to drinkability. You know, you were talking about this idea of making wines that are drinkable. You know, you can open them, crack them open. You can taste that liveliness in the wine. I mean, maybe for listeners here, you can kind of like define that drinkability a little bit. What you hope people get out of, you know, a bottle of Intelego when they crack it open. Yeah. So um, the thing is, I grew up in a country where um, I think my first years when I started to study and when I started drinking wines, and especially in the early 2000s, to be honest, I think that a lot of South African reds were not really drinkable. And the reason for that was because it was overripe. It was very tannic. I think we, we, we still struggle a bit with the tannins, you know, and when it comes to mm-hmm. the ripening of the tannins and when people are too much fixated on phenolic ripeness. For instance, the Interlego wines that I make, if I had to wait for phenolic ripeness, it will always be very high in alcohol. If I had to look at the mm-hmm. pips and make sure that the pips are 80%, you know, brown, or I've got brown stems, we'll sit at 15 alcohol wines and no acidity. <laughs> then I have to acidify. And for me, those wines are not really um, drinkable because as the wines age and as the wines evolve, you know, the, the acidity will drop out the added acid. And at the end of the day, you'll just sit with the wine that's very high in alcohol. There's no more fresh tannin or grippy tannin. And that's, I think, where the whole drinkability thing comes in for me. So for me, a very, it's a few components that's very important. And maybe one of the major components are the acidity. And that's why we do pick a lot earlier in the Swartland, so that we can still have that natural grape acidity. Uh, and that's probably also why the wines will come in between, let's say, 11 and 12 and a half alcohol. So those wines, all for me, are very drinkable. And at, even at the early stage, it's very drinkable. But then I also like to see how these wines evolve. And it's amazing to follow these wines and drink it every year to see the evolution it goes through. 
Um, and then also to see how these wines age. For instance, when it comes when it comes to the red wines, I make the wines that maybe this may be a bit of a, a tense tannin. I wouldn't say green tannin, but maybe a bit more of a tense tannin. Mm-hmm. But what I love about those tannins is that those tannins will actually help the wines evolve over time. So that if you drink it in five, six, seven years time, you know, it's still got all this fruit. It's got a bit of it still has a tannin and still has the acidity. So. It's, it's been very simple because for me, from day one, it was always about, uh, I buy a bottle of wine in a restaurant and the bottle of wine in the restaurant that I like the most is the one that will be finished first, except if you have, yeah. other, except if you have friends that's got preferences <laughs> and they yeah, drink a specific wine. But for me, it's always about, <laughs> you know, you, you buy a wine and for me, when I go to a restaurant, I want to open a bottle of wine, I want to drink it and I want to enjoy it. And uh, I think at the end of the night, if I walk away there and I feel good, you know, good about myself and you know not too drunk or whatever then i enjoyed that wine and then the drinkability was great but a lot of times i just feel like we're in a country where drinkability is so difficult you know it's almost like you have to fight through that wine to actually finish that whole bottle or maybe you can only drink one glass of wine so 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 that's a whole thing uh, and i actually had a long discussion with my japanese importer the other day where I know, for instance, they like to hang on to my wines before they release it. Hmm. But I feel like the wines are already at an early age quite drinkable. So, and for me, it's also, people might say it's all about wines need to age and you need to drink, let's say, uh, Barolo in only 10 years' time or maybe, you know, uh, Nushin George or uh, Cordebon only 10 years after aging. But for me, it's also very exciting to go through the different stages because I actually... I don't mind drinking a wine when it's too young because at least then I can see what the wine was like at that early stage. And then maybe a few years later, start to following up on that and see how those wines have evolved over time. Because if you drink it early, you've got a reference point of what it was like in, during the younger days. And then obviously when you drink it at the optimum time, you'll, you know, it's like you can kind of, like almost you don't know that it's optimum unless you tasted it earlier. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think just to come back to the Pernatage, the Pernatage is a perfect example of a wine where drinkability is so important. So, so, so. Because I think if you struggle with drinkability in the Pernatage wine, it's going to be a wine, like I said, that's just very extracted and a wine that's going to be shy and it's not going to be expressive. And I think also with, with wines, once the wines are very expressive and very fresh, the drinkability becomes just so much easier and it all just goes hand in hand. So for me, it's, it's, it's like wine and food goes together. You know, it's like when you go and eat, when you have a great steak, you know, and you, you know, when you get to that stage where you've done, you're done with your plate and you're like mm-hmm. at that moment where you're like, I can have another 200 grams, but it's right, <laughs> right now you feel so good. And that's where I want to get with wine. Or that's where I feel like you want to get with wine. You just want to sit around. Well, what's your bottle. favorite pairing with Pinotage? Like what's, what's your favorite food pairing there? Well, interesting enough, you know, obviously there's a lot of, uh, we have a lot of ostrich meat in South Africa. And I think yeah. that goes really well with that. But then also, I think any kind of game will go really well with the, with the Pernatage. Even any, any lamb, lamb chops or, you know, some lamb stew or some kind of um, meal like that will, will, will pay really mm-hmm. well the Pernatage. So it gives you a lot of different options as well. But yeah, so, so for me, wine and food goes hand in hand. And uh, it's like I said, you know, I want to leave a restaurant at the end of the night. I want to feel, you know, fuck, this was a really good meal. I really enjoyed it. You know, I don't have to go for a run now just to make me feel a bit more light and, you know, refreshing. <laughs> and yeah. that's the same with the wine. And that's also 
that's probably one of the reasons why I converted to natural wines a few years ago. Because with the natural wines, it just enlightened me. I feel good. I feel fresh. Uh, you know, and it's just it's just a different feel. And for me, like I've said before, at the end of the day, it's all about your body. Your body will never lie to you. You know, if I ate too much or if I drank too high alcohol wines, my body will eventually tell me that. I'm gonna feel that. So that's just why. Yeah, that's just basically uh, it's a reaction, and it's just you know how how and what your body can handle and how it reacts. Uh, and my body just reacts really well to these more drinkable wines. But like, but also at the, on the other hand, drinkable wines can be complex wines. It's not only wines that's not complex, you know. Uh, but I think what is very important and what I've learned from, like I said, a country where tannins has been always an issue is that um, a very tannic wine or a very, uh, whether it's grape tannin or oak tannin can sometimes be very tricky when it comes to drinkability. And for me, I'd rather stay away from the oak tannin and also I don't want to work too hard on the grape tannin. So for me, it's, it's, it's more about the freshness and maybe to show but more fruit where the other producer maybe would have shown more tannin. So yeah, I think it's this, this balance between those two and uh, that's where the drinkability for me comes in. So yeah. I love it. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Jurgen, is there anything else you want to let people know? You want to let people in the States know about the wines or about Sportland or about South Africa in general? Um, well, number one, I'm missing Texas. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to come out there next time again. And get uh, you some barbecue, uh, some Tex-Mex. Yes, man. Some Al Pastor tacos. Yes. Uh, the last time we were out there, we had um, the Sunday lunch. Um, you know, we just had the barbecue. Uh, yeah, we just queued up outside this one place and where they did, did the thing on the... Um, in the smoker and it was amazing yeah. it's absolutely amazing and it's absolutely amazing to taste how tender the meat is in texas that's crazy no ostrich here it's all brisket and no it's fine pork. but the brisket and pork and stuff makes up for that no it's it's absolutely yeah. amazing and i mean it's just yeah it's just great to to to, to be there and to to experience it all and i mean it's, it's, a, it's a great place and the people are awesome so missing the u.s uh, but then wine wise in south africa i think um very exciting times and um yeah we there's a lot of exciting things happening in this country and uh it's just amazing to see the quality coming out of here and um i think that's also because people are way more open-minded nowadays about things and their whole approach and we also more travel wise so i think it all played a very big part in in how this country has all of a sudden you know when it comes to the wines starting to evolve as well um, and then in the Swatland, yeah, we're just continuing with, you know, uh, I think doing the goods. And it's great to see how there's a lot of emphasis now on the farming as well, uh, because we all know it's, it's, it's good to make wines. But at the end of the day, great, great, great wines come from great vineyards, great grapes. And uh, I think we're slowly starting to get it right. And even if you take the country in a whole, um, that uh, certain geographical areas are just made for certain great varietals and slowly but surely you can start to see that in this country so uh, it's, it's it's a lot of exciting times lying ahead um, for the south african wine industry and uh yeah i just want to encourage the people to keep on drinking south african wines because it's just going to get better and better so yeah i love it what do you got going on the rest of the day because it's it's about dinner time where you are right? yes so my two interns they're busy they're doing a barbecue we're just doing chicken kebab 
So, uh, yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that. You know, it's always nice to have interns so then they, they can cook. <laughs> they can do the cooking for you. Exactly, man. you know. <laughs> so, yeah, Hell yeah, looking forward to that. All right, man. Well, cool. I'll let you get to your kebabs. I'll let you get okay. to the barbecue. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, man. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can stream every episode of By the Glass ever recorded on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, wherever you stream your audio content. All you have to do is smash that subscribe button. So um, like the podcast, share the podcast, tell your friends, tell your family, and we will see you with another episode next week.